time we are in the history of Sunday school. It's 159, and this is a record right now. Um, we also, Greg was reminding us, we, the storm may hit in about 10 minutes. So just be prepared for clapping thunder and loud rain, and, and we'll just uh, we'll, we'll do the best with what we have here uh, during Sunday school. I can hear some rumbling, I think, back there somewhere. Um, today we are talking about, so we're already on a controversial series, right? Can we, can we all agree there's controversy to the, to the tulip? And uh, unconditional election is a very hotly contested issue, but I don't think it even comes close to the issue that we're on today. And I'll say just two things, and then we'll pray and, and try to get into this. Number one, if you've never heard this before, uh, I would ask just, just to be open-minded and see what does Scripture really teach on this issue? Uh, I think that the L in the tulip, which is not a great name, it's limited atonement, which sounds like we're trying to minimize the cross, which is not what we're trying to do. Uh, but, but the L, limited atonement, I think is probably the most controversial most objected to of the five, and probably the most misunderstood of the five. Although I, I could be wrong on some of that. That's my impression just based on anecdotal and, and what I've heard around. So, uh, Jerry, can you pray for us? We definitely need God's help. We want to be clear. We want to be biblical. We don't want to mislead. We don't want to create false impressions. Uh, we want to be gracious and humble in the way that we talk about this. It's a very humbling doctrine. So, as the thunder comes, can you pray for us? Gracious Father, we do come before you with uh, uh, humble hearts, and we ask for more humble hearts, that we would be able to uh, think and uh, digest such an incredible um, topic. Father, that you would uh, send your son, your only son, not spare your only son, but give him up for us all. Um, every person that was the elect before the beginning of time um, that will ever come to know you, those that were foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, that will soon be glorified. We are we're just overwhelmed that you would uh, have loved us to such a degree. And so, Lord, today, on a, uh, a hard topic, a controversial topic, we ask that we would be um, gracious in how we think through this. We ask that you would make us um, biblical, thoroughly biblical. We thank you for so many passages that uh, address the topic so we don't feel like we have to uh, guess or come up with things on our own. I pray that we would um, keep close to the text. And Lord, give us wisdom and uh, help us to rejoice in this overwhelmingly great um, topic. And Lord, as the uh, thunder and, and lightning uh, roars outside, we're so grateful for your power and uh, our, our thoughts about heaven um, from Revelation, that that's just a great sign of who you are and that you're in control. And we're so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just to begin, because I, we want to be as clear as we can on, on this very difficult issue of, of limited atonement, Here, here's what we, we want to be heard saying clearly. Nothing that we say or intend to say is going to invalidate this next statement that I, I want to make. So we believe with all of our hearts this, Jesus died for sinners in such a way that any sinner on earth who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ's finished work will be saved. Nothing we're about to say in any way goes against that statement. So I'm going to say it again. We believe Jesus died for sinners in such a way that anybody and everybody 
who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will be saved, which is why we believe in the, uh, the preaching of the gospel to all, making that offer to every single human being on earth and urging and pleading with everybody we know and love to say, listen, if you will turn and trust Christ, he will forgive you fully, completely, eternally right now in this moment. And so nothing, nothing, nothing we're going to say about limited atonement is going to invalidate that statement. And um, Jerry, just any, any open, because th this is probably the most difficult one, any opening thoughts as we move into the L? Uh, yeah, I look forward to you and Greg kind of hearing that it's limited if we even use that language. There might be better ways to, to say it. But what's thrilling about it is Christ's death didn't just open the door for us for salvation, but it secured salvation. It bought it for us so that if it was left to us, if it had just opened up the door, we would have never received it. But because it is secure now that his death bought us for God um, is, is overwhelming to me. And so there, that part's not limited. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's an amazing thought to, to think about that. Greg, any opening remarks about limited atonement? Well, I think it is important to say that unless you believe in universalism, which means everybody everywhere is going to be saved regardless, and, and unless you believe in that, everybody limits Christ's work in some way. Um, and it's, it's how it's limited based on what we understand in Scripture. And again, when we say limited, we're not detracting from the worth of it it has more to do with who actually receives it, who benefits from it. Um, but everybody does. If you believe the gospel, whether you're more Calvinistic or not, then you, you will not say that every single person is going to be saved. Well, you're just not going to say that. And so if, if, if that's the case, then you're limiting it in some way, like we all do. But the question is, how does the Bible teach us to think about this? And again, I'm with you, Jerry. I don't, I don't know if I like the term limited. Yeah. Um, it just it creates too many, um, little negative. Too many negative yeah. thoughts in our, you know, negative associations and connections. But everybody who, who is based in the, in, in the truth, whether Calvinist or Arminian, is going to say not everybody's going to be saved. Like we all agree you have to believe. And then it kind of gets into, well, why do people believe and all that? But it, it, it's not an automatic thing uh, that if, if Christ, you know, if he died for everyone, then why isn't everyone saved? We have to answer that question. That's good. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10. And there's obviously lots of scripture that we're, we need to look, look at and work through carefully on this topic. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, I'll, I'll just point here at the screen again uh, for, for the five points of the tulip here. Uh, for number two, for unconditional election, you see that God the Father uh, chose his sheep, his elect, uh, particularly out of a fallen humanity. Clearly, election does not apply to every individual or everyone would be saved. So you've got here God the Father uh, is in particular behind uh, unconditional election. Limited atonement, I prefer the title particular redemption or definite atonement, that Jesus is dying to secure the salvation of his people in a unique way. That is particularly the work of God the Son. And then for I, irresistible grace, again, I prefer a biblical title, which would be the effectual call of God, the sovereign call of God. That is carried out by God the Spirit, uh, the gift of regeneration, the gift of faith, the sovereign call. That's the particular work of the Spirit. So you see the triune God 
is in harmony. If these points are correct, right? If, if, if arguments are correct, then the triune God is in harmony here. God chose his elect before the foundation of the world. Jesus died to specifically secure the salvation of his elect, and the Holy Spirit will overcome our resistance and give us the faith to believe. So there's complete harmony in election between the triune God. And so if you believe in unlimited atonement, you actually have God the Father and God the Spirit working at cross purposes against God the Son. Do you see that? So the Father elects some, not all. The Spirit regenerates some, not all. But Jesus dies in the same way for all, and there's no particular way in which he dies for his own. That would be a, sort of an odd way to think about it. Kevin DeYoung uh, has said it like this. The doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement is not just about the extent of the atonement, how wide it is, right? But about the nature of the atonement. Did the Son of God die to make salvation merely possible or to make people saved? Did he die simply to make salvation possible or did he die to actually save his own? Uh, a great systematician, John Frame, who Greg and I have talked about recently, he says it like this. Those who say that the, the atonement has an unlimited extent, this would be more the Arminian side, it's, he died for all in the same way. This is, now let's be honest, we're not trying to bash anybody here. The, the average American Christian, 98%. Are going to, maybe 99% are going to take the view of unlimited atonement. It's just, it's in the air in our culture. So we want to be gracious. We're not saying those people are not Christians. We're not saying that they've misunderstood the gospel fundamentally, but I think there's more to be said. So listen, uh, those who say the atonement has unlimited extent believe that it has limited efficacy. Because think about it, if Jesus died for Adolf Hitler, who's in hell, or I'm assuming he's in hell, or for, say, uh, Goliath, who we know died as an unbeliever, or Jezebel, who died as an unbeliever, did Jesus die for them in the exact same way he died for his bride, the church? And if so, that means his death doesn't actually guarantee anyone gets saved. So it might be unlimited in extent, it, it includes Goliath and Jezebel in the same way as you and I, but it doesn't actually affect anything. It doesn't guarantee that Goliath is safe because he wasn't. It doesn't guarantee Jezebel is safe. She wasn't, right? So is it unlimited in extent but limited in effect, uh, a limited power to save? Or, listen to this, those who believe the atonement is limited to the elect, this is what we're teaching, limited to the elect, however, believe that it has unlimited efficacy. In other words, if Jesus died specifically to purchase his bride, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not another woman. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle. Does that sound particular? He's dying for the church in particular. And uh, although there might be limited scope to that death, it is unlimited in its efficacy. It's guaranteed to save his bride. This dowry leads to this wedding, right? It, it's going to happen. And then uh, Frame says, so everyone believes in some kind of limitation of the atonement. That's huge. Okay, we, we got stuck with the bad name, right? Limited atonement. But everyone limits the atonement. You either limit the extent of the atonement or you limit the effectiveness of the atonement. But you can't have it both ways unless you're a universalist that believes everyone goes to heaven when they die. So everyone believes in some kind of limitation of, of, of the cross. Either the atonement is limited in its extent or limited in its efficacy. I think the Bible teaches that it is limited in its extent, unlimited in its efficacy. One more quote here, J.I. Packer. Our minds, now this is a criticism, but I think we need to hear it. Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption that does less than redeem, because Goliath's not redeemed if Jesus died for him in the same way. Uh, we, we've been conditioned to think of the cross as a, as a redemption that does less than redeem, and of Christ as a Savior who does less than save. 
and of God's love as a weak affection that cannot keep anyone from hell without help, and of faith as the human help God needs for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Wow, right? I mean, I think that in American Christianity, this is the much more typical way the gospel is presented, not as, it's more like Jesus really wants you to, to do this rather than we need Jesus. He doesn't need us, right? The, the, the presentation of the gospel should be, we desperately need a Savior. Let's turn to Jesus, not Jesus so desperately needs our help to, to complete the effect of salvation uh, in our lives. Reflections just on those opening comments before we turn to John 10. Can I say one thing about Goliath? I think it's interesting because talking about him being in hell. If that was true that Jesus died for him, then could you see that God poured his wrath on Jesus and now God is pouring his wrath on Goliath both. It would be like a double payment, right? And so somebody is going to get wrath for my sins. It's going to be me or it's going to be Jesus depending on whether I know him or not. And it's Jesus. But for Goliath, that would mean he was getting God's wrath. Um, you know, for, and Jesus got it too. So that just logically... I think it puts a hole in that kind of an idea. Well, and I, you know, again, unintentionally, I want to, like you're saying, I want to be as gracious as Absolutely. I can be on this. Absolutely. But unintentionally, it says Jesus actually didn't pay for all of Goliath's sin. Yeah, right. Because unbelief left. is a sin. And if Goliath died in unbelief, then Jesus obviously didn't pay that price for Goliath's unbelief. Because if he did, then Goliath what's he would not. For? Yeah, exactly. What, what is there for Goliath to suffer? Um, there, there's nothing if Jesus paid for the sin of his unbelief. So. You know, it doesn't work in that way. And in drawing on that, the part of what uh, J.I. Packer said, you know, God's love is a weak affection that cannot keep anyone from hell without help. Um, you know, the way it's, it's often portrayed is God's almost like a lovesick teenager. Like he's just desperate for, for you to like him and love him back. And that's just not the picture. Because um, you people talk about God's just crazy in love with you. He's just crazy about you. Well, that's not the most helpful way to think about this. Does God love people? Yes, but we don't want to think of it like in this almost like God's got a crush on you kind of, because that's almost how it's presented sometimes, the way I've heard people talk. And it's just like that is a diminished view of who God is. It's a diminished view of the love of God. It's a diminished view of God, God's ability to save, God's ability to redeem, that he's just this, this, this you know, heart-sick what, you know, hopeless romantic who just really wants somebody to love him back. It's just like, that's just not the picture the Bible gives us. Could you say that it's sufficient? What would be the language you would use? Yes. And maybe yeah, you're yeah. going there. We are not, and we, I hope to get to that later, but we are not in any way saying Jesus's death is insufficient to save every human being who's ever lived. I think both people and all, everyone on all sides agrees. If Jesus wanted to apply his atonement to every individual and bring every single individual to heaven, could he do so? Of course he could. Now, I think everyone agrees that he does not choose to apply his atonement to every individual unless you're a universalist, which is not really within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. So, so we, we, all, we all agree his, his cross is unlimited in its sufficiency. But the question is, what was the intent of God in sending Jesus to die? Mm -hmm. Who was he sent by God particularly to save? And just let me, let me stop here. I know you're thinking of verses like John 3.16 in your mind, and you're going, what about that? I, I know. We're going we're to get to those verses later, but I want to build a case for verses that we often don't think about in relationship to the cross. And listen, they also come from John, same book, okay, and the same author. So let's turn to John 10 if you're not there already, and we won't read every verse of this chapter, but we'll just get to some of the main points here. Look at verse 11. 
And let's not bypass too quickly what we see here. Maybe start in verse 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's the universal offer. Anyone who enters by Jesus will be saved. Amen to that. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus, I think, has to be distinguishing the sheep from the wolves or the goats in this text. That there is a special way in which the good shepherd laid down his life with the intent and with the effective result of saving his own, his sheep, which is not everyone. There's a way in which this shepherd laid down his life for the sheep that he did not lay down for the wolves. And otherwise, I don't know what to do with this statement in what is Jesus trying to say. He's clearly saying there's a special way, an effective way, in which the good shepherd died for his own sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. Now, now listen, this language is amazing. I know my own, right? I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, do you see here, uh, even looking at the screen, do you see those specific phrases? Is he talking about every individual in the world in this passage? No, because he says, I know my own. That's his elect. They know me. That's believers, ultimately. I lay down my life for the sheep. Hey, there's other sheep outside of Israel. There's sheep across the world. I'm going to win them. I'm going to save them. I'm bringing them also. I must bring them also. They maybe will listen to my voice. Some of them will listen to my voice. No, they will listen to my voice. Uh, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is what we mean by particular redemption. The good shepherd was sent into the world to save his sheep. Do you, do you see that the intent of God sending the shepherd was specifically to save all of his sheep across the world? Uh, look at verse uh, 25. Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe. So some of the Pharisees don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. Well, what's the difference here? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's greater than all, no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, do you see here the distinction? You've got some who are not believers. They're not part of the sheep. Uh, he says here, I told you and you don't believe. And then he says this, the reason you don't believe is because you're not among the flock I came to save. I mean, isn't that breathtaking? You don't believe because you're not among my elect, my sheep, my people. My sheep, my elect, my chosen ones hear my voice, all of them. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. This is, this is a definite atonement. He's going to give them eternal life. They will never perish. Not one sheep, not one elect individual is going to perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. This is particular redemption. This is Jesus coming with the intent of atoning for and laying down his life for his own sheep, not the, not the non-sheep, but for his sheep. And he will effectually save how many? 100%. No one will snatch them. They will never perish. They will follow me. So I think texts like this are worth, if it, 
linger over these texts. Like spend time sitting over John 10 and see, is that really in this text? And I think it is stunningly strong in a text like this. Thoughts from, on, on this passage? Well, backing up just a little uh, in John 10, when he, you, you read several places, he says, I, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. And the result, I mean, I, I want to tie it to that specifically because what you pointed out here, um, I give them eternal life. How does he give them eternal life? Because he laid down his life for them. He laid down his life so he could give them eternal life. And the connection is laying down his life is a reference to his death. So everyone for whom he died will receive eternal life in that sense. And again, it's, it's like making this connection. There was a particular people in view uh, that he intended to, as you said, 100% save when he went to the cross. Um, and so we, we, we have to keep those connections in mind because, again, if you see it, if we don't rush through the text... And, and cherry pick little one section or one verse here, but we let all of it speak as a whole, especially the context of John 10, the laying down his life, giving eternal life, they will never perish. That's talking about the people for who he died. And he knows exactly who those are when he did it. It's not like he's got this nebulous sheep category out there. Um, well, I, right. I'm going to have a people. I have no idea who they are yet. No, he knows exactly who they are to the detail, to the person, and it's for them that he lays his life down. And if he's laid his life down for you, you will never perish. Calls them his own. Yeah. And 6 and 17 are just as convincing, wouldn't you say? Remind chapter me 6. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let, yeah let's yeah. Turn, turn to chapter 6 real quick. John 6. I think John's gospel is, is shocking in how clear some of these texts, I, I think, are. Uh, John chapter 6, look at verse 36. And I'm just, I got to read John 6.35, one of my favorite verses, because here you have, again, the offer is universal. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does it say? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is not in violation of anything we are saying. The offer is for anyone who wants it, anyone who believes, anyone who turns and trusts. The question is, if we're totally depraved, who's going to want it? Who's going to turn and trust Jesus if I don't want Jesus by my natural state of loving sin? And so look, look at verse 36. And don't you love their back to back? Oh, you I know, know that God wants us to know this and see it in the same breath almost. In the Absolutely. Same, so clear. Absolutely. So look at verse 36. Jesus said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So again, you've got unbelief here. And then this is amazing. All that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Now, th this next line is amazing. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, again, do you see here? Some of you have seen me and don't believe. Now, here's what Jesus says. All. This is, again, particular redemption, definite atonement, a particular group. All, every single one that the Father gives me will do what? They're going to come to Jesus. They will believe in Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Now, look at this. this is, I think this is a very strong text for the limited atonement view. I have come down from heaven. So Jesus is telling us why God sent him to earth on a saving mission. This is important. I have come down from heaven. Why was he sent? Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, what is the Father's will? 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all, same all from up here, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's particular redemption. He came to die for a particular group and to infallibly secure the salvation of his bride, to infallibly secure the salvation of his elect. And he's going to lose how many of his elect? Zero sheep are going to perish. The good shepherd died to save the sheep. I think this is a very persuasive text on that issue. Thoughts on, on that passage? Well, I mean, even in this, you see this doesn't conflict with the universal offer of the gospel. No. I mean, look at verse it's 37 right again. Like, this is so amazing. And remember, you've got the, remember we talked, we're going to go back to this, the two wills of God. You've got God's sovereign will of decree by which he ordains everything that comes to pass. And you've got his will of command by which, you know, he tells us, do this, don't do this, live this way, don't live that way, love this, hate that. Like, that's, that's our level of interaction with this. We don't get into God's sovereign decrees and, like, try to live in that. We know it's true. We know it's what he has decreed is going to happen. We rest in that. We, we find hope in that, strength in that. But that's not what we live in in terms of our everyday right. experience. We live in, you know, where God says, do this, don't do that. And so look at it. Verse 37 gives us both of those, okay? Mm-hmm. First half, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's God's sovereign decree. God has determined that there is a specific number that he's going to give to Jesus. And what's going to happen, those whom the Father determined to give to Jesus are going to come to Jesus. That's saving faith. That's repentance. It's all of that. Okay, it's all bound up in that, even though it's not explicitly said here. If you come to Jesus, we know you have to have you have to believe you have to repent. But then look at the other half of that. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because again, think about it. When we preach the gospel, we're not telling people, hey, you got to figure out if the Father's given you to Jesus. That's not what we say. You don't see any example of that in the New Testament. You don't see any, any example. You don't see any instruction in that regard. Instead, like we said, we are free. We are, uh, we are just giving the gospel away and we are calling everyone to repent and believe. And that's the promise. It's not like, do I need to figure out if I'm elect, if God's giving me to Jesus? No, the, where, where it meets us is, do I want to come to him? Am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Do I need Jesus? Do I see that? Like that's where we meet people, not with, hey, try to figure out if he's giving you, if the father's giving you to Jesus. No, it's instead, do you see your need? Do you want to come to Jesus? Do you, do you see that you don't have any other choice but to come to him because you don't have life without him? And so I hope you can see like the, the two different things working there. God's sovereign decree and the, 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 his will of command there. Like, it's like, look, come, you know, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. Um, and Open. that's where we operate is in that that lane, the sovereign decree lane is not what we live yeah. in and operate in. It undergirds everything else, but we live in the do this, don't do that, love this, hate that, go here, don't go there. That's the lane we live in, and that's why we can see both of those right here in verse 37, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, in 37 and 39, uh, that, those words that we'll see in chapter 17 again, gives it. God gave Jesus, MacArthur calls it a love gift. God gave Jesus a love gift before the beginning of time of everybody that's elect. And then Jesus goes, pays the supreme sacrifice to clean us up, to give us back to God as a pure bride. The beautiful thing. Can I, can I say one yeah. more thing? I just thought of this because this is an objection against what we're saying. 
Um, and again, I, I feel like it's well-intentioned, but I think it's just wrong. Um, one of the objections is, well, you believe that there's all these people who want to go to heaven that God just refuses. Mm. All these people want to get in, but God said, nope, I didn't choose you, so you can't come. Even though they really want to come. That, that's an objection that has been raised. And the simple answer to that is, such a person doesn't exist. There is no such person who wants to go to heaven genuinely and truly who God's going to turn away. It won't happen. God won't do it. Jesus says he will not be cast out. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an objection that, that scores more of a rhetorical like play on your heart. Oh, man, that's terrible. If God chooses and Jesus only died for something, then, then there's all these people who want to go to heaven whom God just, nope, nope, Jesus didn't die for you. I didn't choose you. And, and that, that's just a made-up scenario that the Bible never talks about. I want to quote uh, an author on, on that very point, because that's a great point. So l- listen to this. This, is, uh, this always moved me when I first heard this. Uh, some of you may have heard this quote. Listen to this. It's an author named Mark Webb who said he was teaching a class, and this is what he said. After giving a brief survey of the doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I have ever heard, these doctrines. She said, you make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. This is the objection. He says, I answered her in this vein. You, under, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you or you or you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men without exception are, what were we doing? Running with our, we were running with, uh, here in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as we could go. So God in election graciously reaches out and stops this one, turns him around. And then this one over here, and this one over here, and this one over here, effectually drawing them to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. Oh, listen, this is, this is so powerful. Election, unconditional election, keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams and we would be heading there, right? Apart from God's intervention, that kind of response, grounded as I believe it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? And then the closing comment, if you perish in hell, blame yourself as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God for that is entirely his work. To him alone belong all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Wow. I mean, that I think is exactly the right way uh, to respond to a, a very difficult sort of, sort of objection. Well, let's turn to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. We all know this prayer, I'm sure most of us. This and is technically the Lord's prayer. This is, this is yeah, the real Lord's prayer in a sense. Um, this is the night before Jesus is going to go die on the cross for sinners. This is Thursday night after the Last Supper. Judas has already left the room to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 9 a.m. the next morning, Jesus is whipped and, and, and hung on the tree. Let's look at this prayer here. So John uh, 17, verse 1. This is amazing. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is the cross. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, what does Jesus have authority over all flesh to do? To 
give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there it is again. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and what's he going to do with it? He is going to see to it that every single one of the elect that the Father gave to the Son is saved by Jesus. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to, look, the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept them, uh, and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I am, now this is amazing. I am praying for them. Now look, I am not praying for the world. That is an amazing statement. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy cow. I'll never forget R.C. Sproul teaching on this verse. He said, are we really to believe that the night before Jesus dies on the cross, he is going to pray only for his elect, but the next day he's going to die in the same way for all? Look at the prayer. I am praying for them, those whom the Father has given him. That's the sheep, the elect, right? The, those. I am not praying for the world. Whoa. This is the night before he dies. Well, who's he praying for? But those, for, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is limiting his prayer to the elect. It's particular prayer, right? This is definite prayer for his elect. It's not indiscriminate. He's, he's actually putting his own people in contrast to the world. And Sproul said, he's going to die the next day for everybody, but he's only going to pray for his elect the night before. It seems as though he's going to die specifically to save the very people he's praying for the night before, which is the definite or particular uh, redemption. Thoughts on this? Uh, I want a couple more verses, but thoughts on that so far? No, I'm, I'm thinking further down. Okay, Go verse ahead. 20. I do not, so, so in case you think he's just talking about the disciples, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. All believers, all of God's people. Verse 24 is amazing to me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This prayer is saying, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for all the elect that you've given me. I'm going to save every single one of them according to your plan. And tomorrow morning when I'm crucified, I'm going to secure infallibly, unlimited in its reach, the effective atonement for all of my bride. I'm not losing one because the good shepherd saves all his sheep. That's the spirit in which this prayer is being prayed, which is pretty amazing stuff. Thoughts on, on this so far? 24, uh, our pastor Myrtle Beach would use that at almost every funeral that he did. Someday, the Father, Jesus prays, I desire, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, how many times has he used in that whom you have phraseology? Given me. Yeah, may be with me where I am. And that's what's going to happen someday. We get to go to heaven. Jesus wants us to be with him there someday. And uh, so that's a powerful verse. Um, you know, when, when we think about the death of a loved one, that's truly a believer. Well, and think about the fact that G what Jesus did in his death, he got rid of everything that would keep us out of heaven. Mm -hmm. And then obviously we get his righteousness. So it's not just that our sin is canceled. All the, the obedience that he gave to God is then credited to us as though we had done the same thing. Mm. So everything that he did um, that would keep us out of heaven, he, I mean, he, he got rid of it. He completely got rid of it in his death. Um, and that's why he can say, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me. 
how do we know that every single one um, that Jesus gave himself for is going to be in heaven with him? It's because he got rid of everything that would keep them out of heaven. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Again, if he got rid of everything that'll keep a person out of heaven for every single individual who's ever lived, then every single individual who's ever lived is going to be in heaven. I mean, we, 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 we have to think about it in that way because that's what Scripture is leading us to. You think about the desire, the, the, the purpose of the Father, and you see, I mean, listen to this. I desire, I want, this is, this is the, Jesus saying, he's, he's praying, God, I want this particular people to be with me. And is, is, is he going to be refused in that? Is he going to see any of that fall to the ground? And the answer is no. You don't have to flip to all these verses right now, but just, just to, I know I mentioned this already, just want you to see it on the screen, Ephesians 5, just, this is a good text to look at. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that's the goal, to sanctify her, having cleansed her, this is his elect specifically, by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the world, no, the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This text is glorious, but do you see particular redemption is being taught in this text? He died specifically for his bride. No other woman does Jesus love like his bride. There is a special love he has for his wife that he doesn't have for anyone else, right? That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea here. Matthew 121, famous Christmas verse, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means what? Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. He's going to do that. He's going to save his people. That's not every individual. That's his people from their sins. Acts 20, 28, Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. Look at the middle of the verse. Overseers to care, or who are meant to care for the church of God, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So again, God sent Jesus to die specifically to obtain his church with his blood. And we were just in this one in Revelation, weren't we? I, we almost went there that night, but we didn't, it would have been too much of a distraction. But look at, we were just here a couple, what, a week ago or so. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. So you've got the death of Jesus. And by your blood, you ransomed, not everybody, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it doesn't say he ransomed every tribe and people and nation and language and everybody would go to heaven. What does it say? You were slain and by your blood, his particular purpose for his blood was what? It was to ransom people for God from all the peoples of the earth. It doesn't say he, he was ransoming every people on the earth. No, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is a, a great verse for particular uh, redemption. And Can we look at verse 10 real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have... I don't have 10, have 10. Let, let's go to it look, anyway. Look at verse 10 in Revelation 5, because those whom he ransomed, um, very particular here, look at verse 10, and you have made them. You have made them, the ones he ransomed with his blood, the ones he died for. He made them a kingdom and priests to our God who will reign on earth. So again, you see a very a, a specificity, um, a, a particularity to this. You know, yes, people from, for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them something. So if Jesus has actually ransomed you, and again, we believe his, his death is effective for those whom it's intended, 
If he has ransomed you, you are a kingdom and priest to God. Like that's you right now. If you're a believer, that's you. Why? Because that's what Jesus purchased for you when he died. Okay. Again, if he literally purchased that for every single individual, then every single individual is going to be a king, part of that kingdom and priests. Okay, so turn with us real quick. A couple flip, flipping here, but Luke, Luke 22. This is the, the last uh, supper. Luke 22. And uh, Piper, others have talked about this. Piper in particular kind of drew this to my attention a number of years ago, and I thought this was a, a good way to talk about this. So before we keep going, let's just, let's just clarify. We are in no way disagreeing with the fact that the gospel is to be offered to all. But remember, remember, the universal offer of the gospel is still true. Let me say it again. Jesus died for sinners in such a way that if you turn from sin and trust in Christ, you will be saved right now in this moment. Nothing we've said in any way disagrees with that. What we're saying is, who is actually going to respond in humility and faith to the gospel? The sheep. God's elect. God's chosen people. Those are the ones. And how does that happen? God grants the gift of faith. He grants the gift of repentance. He grants regenerating grace. He causes the new birth. And what happens? We freely and necessarily, those things go together. We freely and necessarily turn to Christ in, in, in humility. And uh, look here, Luke 22, uh, verse 20, talking about the cup. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, do you see here, he's got the new covenant. So it sounds as though Jesus is purchasing the new covenant through his blood for his people. Greg, you want to help unpack a little bit here about this idea of Jesus taking on the new covenant? I know there's drawing on Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Yeah. So hold, hold your place there. Um, look at, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31 first. Uh, there's a couple of passages. There's more that we could look at. Um, for time's sake, we'll look at, at these two right now. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 contains probably um, one of the great, the, the most clear unpacking of the new covenant, the need for a new covenant, um, as opposed to the old covenant that God had made with Israel. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, we'll read through verse 34. And now think, think about what you're reading here, and this is what Jesus is saying he is going to bring about through his blood. He's going to, to, he's purchasing it. He's going to inaugurate it, get it started. The new covenant comes into being through the death of Jesus. Okay, so everything that the Old Testament is promising and anticipating about this new covenant is what Jesus actually effects in his death. Okay, so here we go. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And here's why they need a new one. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, as opposed to on tablets of stone. It's going to be within them, not in, a, in an ark. It's going to be in them. And look what he says. I will write it on their hearts. Wow. I will write it on their hearts. So remember, old covenant could only exert an external pressure to obey. It's what you need to do, but it gives you no power to do it. 
So in this new covenant, the law is not going to be written externally to God's people. It's going to be written on the inside, meaning it's going to utterly transform who we are mm-hmm. when it's written on our hearts. No longer is it, well, that's something I should do, but I don't want to. It goes to, wow, I actually want to do what pleases God. That's regeneration. Um, yeah, that's regeneration, being born again, the new birth. Um, let's keep going. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And look at verse 34. And no, and this is a, a, a subtle plug for Baptist here, by the way. Um, I won't linger on it, but it is interesting. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. Meaning this covenant community is regenerate. Everyone in here knows the Lord. Okay. Like I said, I'm not going to linger there, but I think that's a strong argument for believers baptism. He says, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what's going to happen when this new covenant comes? It's not going to be like the old covenant that we can break and, and ultimately be cast away from God because we broke it. Um, it's going, the, he's going to do what? Verse 33. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. He's going to be their God, but in a way that Israel never experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, they will be his people in a way that Israel never experienced. And again, they'll no longer. So this isn't going to be a mixed community. Okay. At least in, in principle, it's not a mixed community where you've got a lot of people who may or may not be saved living together, even though they're both in covenant with the Lord in this covenant, everyone will be saved and there will be a forgiveness of sins that's greater than whatever Israel experienced through the sacrificial system. It has to be. If it's a new covenant that can't, that, that can't be done away with like the old covenant, then the forgiveness that comes through this covenant has to be permanent. It has to be greater. It has to far uh, surpass whatever was in the old one. Now, let, let me slip yeah, in J- Jeremiah 32, just the very next chapter. Look at verse 39. Uh, I will give them one heart. This is the new covenant promise. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after me, after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. This is the new covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Now look at this. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. So what we're saying is this, and I want to get to Ezekiel just a second too. Ezekiel says the same thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased, remember the new covenant in my blood. Now, the new covenant includes promises about God changing our hearts and making us willing to follow him. That is secured. It's purchased on the cross. Those new covenant promises that we're going to be regenerate, the gift of the new birth, those promises are purchased by the blood of Christ. Are they given to everybody? No, because not everyone's regenerate. Who are they bought for? They're bought for all who are regenerated one day in their life. The elect, God's true people. So Jesus purchases the gift of the new birth, the gift of a willing heart. He purchases that on the cross. This is the new covenant in my blood. Who does he shed for many for the remission of sins? Who are the many? They're the sheep, the elect, the church, the bride, all who God has given to the son to save. So it's not simply that God chooses those who will believe. No, he chooses us so that we will believe. He picks us and buys the new covenant for us so that we have a new heart. He gives us that. And once he gives the new heart, we want to follow him. He puts the fear in our heart that we would not turn away from him. So Ezekiel 36. Well, and, and as we turn to Ezekiel, think about the fear thing. What does Romans 3 say? There's no fear of God before their mm-hmm. eyes. Like right. that's all of us in our sin. And so if, if we don't fear God, we can't make ourselves do that unless God does something radical in us. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's look at verses, just 
again, there's, there's, there's context and all kinds of stuff um, that we could, we could draw attention to. There's, this is a rich, rich passage about God's future work in his people. But let's focus on the theme of God, what he's going to do inside. Again, this is New Covenant terminology here, beginning in verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I think verse 25 or 25 to 27 underlies John 3, Jesus's discussion mm-hmm. with Nicodemus. That's why he kind of chastises like, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Um, you know, this, this clean, because Jesus says what? You got to be born of water and the spirit. What's this water? It's this, this, this spiritual cleansing that God's going to give that he promised here in Ezekiel to, to cleanse his people with. He's going to, you know, there's not like some like, you know, spiritual counterpart where God's got like this special spiritual water. It's, it's not what he's saying. It's, it's, it's language saying, I know how to change your heart so that you love and follow me. And again, this is what Jesus purchases for his people in his death on the cross. This is the new covenant, a new heart, a new spirit, um, wanting to walk in his statutes. Again, when he says, cause you to walk in my statutes, careful to obey my rules, this isn't like we're doing this and dragging us against our wills. He's changing our wills. He's changing our wills. He's changing our desires. That's what the new birth does. It gives us new desires, new a new inclination, a new uh, a new focus, new a new trajectory in life. And that's what God is saying He's going to do. So, in Luke twenty two, when Jesus says, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood," we have to keep those Old Testament promises in mind and say, "Wow, that's everything Jesus is going to do through His death." Mm-hmm. No, that's good. And I've got a Piper quote here on the screen as well. Piper says, the blood of the covenant, Christ's blood, purchases and guarantees the new heart of faith and repentance that we just read about. God did not do this for everyone. He did it for a definite or a particular group owing to nothing in themselves. And so, okay, right now we're out of time, but, but I know I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what about John 3.16? What about 1 John 2.2? He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. What about 2 Peter 2.1, where it says, false teachers are among us that deny the master who bought them. These are people headed towards destruction who were bought by Jesus. Uh, what, about all, what about 1 Timothy 2.6 that says, Jesus is the ransom for all. And what about uh, Hebrews 2? He tasted death for all. And Right, we could go on and on. So, so we're going to, it's cliffhanger this week, okay? We're a cliffhanger ending. Uh, we've got lots to say. It's going to take a full week to go through those texts, but we want to kind of walk through those uh, kind of one by one and look at a lot of the main text. And I think even there, you will be surprised by some of the things we're going to find next week as we look at some of the strongest objection texts uh, to this issue. But either way, it is a glorious truth that mm-hmm. to think, I mean, just imagine, Jesus died not just indiscriminately, he died to secure your conversion and salvation. And it was going to be guaranteed effective because of the work that he did on the cross for his sheep. He's going to lose none because of the effective work of his particular redemption. So, Jerry, can you close us in prayer? Yeah. Father, we understand we can't add a thing to that kind of uh, love and, and uh, grace and that kind of work on the, on the cross. Um, forgive us when we try to. Um, we are just very grateful. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us, and that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all, that now we know along with him you will graciously give us all things. We're overwhelmed uh, with that kind of grace and very um, filled with gratitude as we think about these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.